enjoy to be here and to be today. I've been looking forward to coming together tonight. I can't believe it. Our church invited me to come. And I pray that God will richly bless each one of us as we spend time in his word today. Today we're viewing the Gospel of John. quite get through all of it. I think we've got a, a few more messages to go there. And rather than take over where he left off, which we discussed, I thought it might be helpful to bring a complimentary message to John 15. And we're talking about abiding in Christ. And in Psalms chapter 1 is a passage of scripture that helps us to grab hold of one of the components of what it means to abide in so if you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1, we'll be reading the entire chapter, which contains six verses. Would you join me in reading God's word by standing during honor? sinners or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the law and in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. And he's like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not survive the judgment, and sinners will not be in the community of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Thank you. You may be seated. This wisdom psalm occupies the prestigious real estate of being at the beginning of this ancient songbook. Now, location is important. And in this case, it's important for two reasons. One is because, in essence, this, this psalm, this wisdom psalm, captures a good bit of the content of the rest of the psalms. Almost all of them relate back to it in one way or another. Chapter 1 and 2, uh, pretty well, uh, sum up the Psalms, or at least give a fair introduction uh, to all of them. And then, of course, the fact that it's first is significant. It means it's important. Today, we look at it uh, to experience and to understand what the psalmist is writing. Now, Psalms are unique uh, literature in that uh, we are actually studying today from the songbook. This is what they used when they gathered together for worship. And there are various types of psalms. This one is a wisdom psalm, which talks about uh, the way that life is likely to turn out if you behave in a certain way. No guarantees here, no promises. But if you will do this, then likely this is the way your life will be. It will be the trajectory that your life will be on. This psalm also 
relates to other passages of scripture throughout the Bible in that it gives contrasting choices. It says you can do this or you can do this. In this case, uh, you can Meditate in the Word of God, you can be firmly planted there, or you can be listen, listening to advice of wicked people. That's basically the two choices that he gives uh, to us in this psalm. Now, it is written in such a way that most of what you're going to learn from this psalm, you learn in the first two verses. The last four verses are for you to experience what you just learned. And so the psalm is laid out for you to understand it and then to back away from it a moment and just ask the question, okay, so how does this truth play out in my life? And the invitation is not just to view it, but to dive in. Hot day, next to the pool, uh, you're, you're in your swimsuit. You don't just walk around, you jump in. And there's an invitation in this psalm not just to experience, uh, not just to understand, but to experience. So it also has a pattern that we find in other uh, passages of Scripture in that it gives contrasting choices. And I'd like to, to show you a few of those just so that you can kind of fit this in the overall biblical one example of contrasting choices from the Pentateuch is in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. Uh, Moses is relaying the terms of God's renewed covenant with the children of Israel in the land of Moab. And he says, See, today I have set before you the life and prosperity, death and adversity. And so Moses gives the choice between life and death, between prosperity and adversity. And he says, which are you going to pick? Now, the choice, the right choice is obvious. You don't have to do deep thinking to choose which of those you want. And yet, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that the children of Israel didn't always make the right choice. All right? And then, in the prophets, in, in the book of Joshua, this is a popular text preached on Father's Day. Joshua spoke on the occasion of the covenant at Shechem. And here's what he, what he said. If it doesn't please you to worship Yahweh, choose you for yourself today the one that you will worship. The gods your father worshiped beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites or the land you're living. But as for my family, me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Contrasting choices. So you don't have to serve God. You have choices. There's plenty of pagan gods out there. You choose who you're going to serve. And then, quite significant, is Joshua's response wasn't just, I'm going to go this direction, and my family will decide which way they're going to go. But he said, for me and my house, those who eat the fried chicken I provide. <laughs> Those whose feet go under my table. Those who sleep under the, the linen sheets in the bedrooms that I pay the mortgage on. They 
we together will serve the Lord. Okay, you read this and you say, well, of course. Who is not going to choose to serve the one true God? Who is going to go towards the pagans? And yet when you read the record of Scripture, especially when you get into Chronicles and it talks about this king is a good king and this one didn't, and this was a good king except he did this, right? So sprinkled throughout the history of the people of God in the Old Testament are people that didn't make the obvious choice. They made the wrong choice, contrasting choices. These kind of choices not only occur in the Old Testament, but one example from the New Testament. Again, just want you to see how Psalm 1 fits into the continuity of the entire Bible. This one, this example comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. He said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the river rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, but it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and its collapse was great. Once again, the choice is an obvious choice. You need a firm foundation. You need to build your house on the rock. Anybody out here with any experience in construction? I'm not asking you because of the sermons, because I have a building project right now. <laughs> I can tell you that building a firm foundation takes as long, if not longer, than putting the sticks up, than putting the walls up. Because if you don't get the foundation right, nothing else so the choice is obvious. And yet how many people hear the word and don't apply it? Hear what's right and don't do it. The choice is obvious, but that doesn't mean people follow it. And now Psalm 1. In the tradition of other passages of Scripture that offer contrasting choices, and understanding that this literature is going to call on us to do two things, understand the teaching and then experience it, and ultimately make a decision about how to apply it. We jump into this text and we read Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. How happy. Now, if any of you have an older version, maybe you have the word blessed there. Blessed is the man. You know, a lot of times in church we make a big deal about the difference between blessed, being blessed, and being happy. There's no difference. Uh, being blessed is not a spiritual version of happiness. It is what it is. Either your life is going well or it's not. Either, either you're on a fast train going somewhere or your life is a train wreck, right? 
So how happy is a man who does not follow the advice of wicked or take the path of sinners or join in a group of mockers? Now in this verse, the psalmist is using parallelism where he, it's a common poetic device where he's saying the same thing in three different ways. For instance, uh, if I were to say to my beautiful wife, I love you, I couldn't live without you, you bring great joy to me. I'm not really saying three different things. I'm just saying, I don't believe I hit the miracle lottery, but I do believe that God blessed me. It's all saying the same thing, not three different things. And so here, we don't want to make too big of a deal out of the three positions he speaks of, set, walk, and stand. Often, uh, I, I think we err in doing that because we start to say, okay, he's saying this, he's saying this, and he's saying this. No. He's just talking about a simple truth. That the people that are the happiest are not influenced, and neither are they influencing others by wickedness or enmity. What's your source of motivation? What's your source of information? What captures your mind when your mind is not otherwise occupied? Is it things of, of people that are trying to manipulate you or trying to uh, have a particular course of action? Or is it the things of God? And here he says, happy is the man who does not allow that is neither influenced nor is influencing others towards evil. And then he comes into verse 2, and he gives the, the opposite view of that. Now we have a contrasting parallelism. Not this, but this. And in verse 2, he says, instead, his delight. I like that word. His delight is in the Lord's instruction. And he meditates on it day Remember, we're reading poetry. The psalmist is saying what captures his mind, this happy person, is the word of God. When his mind is not otherwise occupied, it's thinking about the ways of the Lord. Day and night, he meditates on the law of God. I don't know how many different translations of the Bible you own. Uh, right here, I could probably access 40 or 50 uh, with different software programs I own. I own three different software programs because I write for three different software programs, and so they've given me copies of their software program. And I suspect 40, 50, I don't know, endless numbers are on my shelf. I have a whole shelf of Bibles that have been gifts given to me over the years. 
each of them precious because of who the giver was. But uh, in fact, the other day we were going through some of that, and my wife talked about a particular Bible that she was fond of, and so I found it, and I have it in my office now, just to remember uh, you know, the occasions that that Bible was used all over the time. Well, we have access to, and by, and by the way, even if you don't own it, you can Google it, and you can find so many translations. It is so easy for us to access God's word, but that was not the case for the original people who sang this song. It was an intentional effort for them to have access to God's word. In fact, I was so delighted today as your worship service began with an extended reading of the word of God. Because the Bible was intended to be read aloud. We personalized it too much. We, you know, it's my copy, it's my translation, my favorite this, my favorite that. You know, we need to just back up for just a moment and understand that the Word of God is precious. It is never owned the intention it to own you. If that doesn't happen with a cursory reading, you know, for years I've made it a practice to read through the Bible every year, and I catch myself almost every day reading the Bible, as is my habit, and my mind is thinking about something else. Anybody else out there? And I have to remind myself, this is God's precious word. Wilson, focus. Focus. You see the contrast. Where are you going to get life direction? Where is the sustenance of your soul? What is going to shape them? Isn't it vice from walking around with ungodly people? listening to their advice? Or is it meditating in the Word of God? We have the ability to listen to the Bible and we don't have time to read it or we drive it. Uh, we have the ability to read it from a translation we can understand. We have access to it all the time. To the original singers of the song, it was a rare truth. The psalmist said, you want to be happy? You need to make the right choice. You need to let God's word shape you. This is not a picture of someone for whom God's word is an add-on item. Any Amazon shoppers out there? <laughs> you know, every now and then you'll see something come on as an add-on item. But you can add this on if you'll spend, you know, so much. We'll send it to you at this time. Uh, you, you go to a fast food place and you order your healthy chicken sandwich and they want to add on those waffle fries. <laughs> 
And then they want to, yeah, they want the sugary Coke. And then they want to, how many sauces do you want? So you get your healthy chicken sandwich on a wheat bun, and then you're squeezing a thousand calories on top of it. Am I right? That's the add-on. For so many believers, God's word is an add-on to their life. It's something they simply add on to their day. They've been taught they're supposed to have a quiet time. So I need to do this. Haven't been to church in a couple of weeks, and you know, I need to at least go two out of four Sundays. So maybe I need to go today. It's an add-on. Benevolence becomes an unusual act in kind being carried. Comes an add-on. That's not the picture here. You know what I think is even worse? Is that many believers have come to view Christianity as something that's advantageous to their life, and that's why they need to follow Jesus. Instead of understanding that it's not what's in it for me. That's not why I'm faithful. That, that's not why I seek the But it's because he is God. And he is righteous and he is holy. And he is deserving of our worship, our praise, and our mind. And then we, churches, often pray on. so that they can attract more people, they talk about the benefits. Well, plenty of benefits to knowing Christ. But to really experience what the Christian life is about, we must consciously be abiding with be an act. can't just be something else that we do. And as a result, those people that make the right choice, that they're not going to be persuaded by this life, but instead they're going to meditate on God's word day and night, live happy, prosperous life. They live life with meaning. Now, if by that statement you heard me say they live a problem-free life, then I did not communicate well. <laughs> because even in the midst of the problem, they experience, here's another song. Few more pages in the songbook here. It goes something like this The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. And there's a line in that that says, even though I walk through the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And what's the reason the psalmist gives? Because you're with me. You know what that means? Walking with God often means that you're walking in troubled times. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Anybody ever been in that valley? Anybody ever been in that valley alone? I've walked in that valley. I don't need to tell you the story. Just look in my eyes. I've been in that valley, and the valley had my name. been in that valley multiple times next to a loved one in a church outside. But I've never been in that valley alone. Because he was with me. See, this happy life that the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 1 is the same life he's talking about in Psalm 23. Not a problem-free, a worry-free life, but a life that is rooted, a life that is secure, a life that is nourished. And now he turns the corner for us in this psalm from us understanding a concept to experiencing it. Psalm 2, verse 3. He's like a tree. Planted besides the stream of water that bears its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. We have a tree here by the rivers of water that's bearing fruit. That's the picture that he wants you to experience. And when I read that, I think, well, how fortunate of that tree that it happens to have grown up right next to the one lucky tree. Because if it would have been just off over yonder where the streams doesn't flow and it didn't have a constant source of water, it would be withering up. It would be fruitless. This is one of those times when the translation does not do the original word justice. The original Hebrew word here can be translated this is not the picture of a tree that just happens to be here. But a gardener noticed, a caretaker noticed, one with power over life and death noticed, and saw a tree that was not in a place that was uh, good for its nourishment and its health. And took the time to dig it up, protecting the root ball, 
moving it over and placed it right next to the stream. Fruit trees do not bear fruit because of their own effort. In John 15, it's by being attached to the vine. That's how fruit comes. In Psalm 1, it's by being next to the rivers of water, which in this analogy is God's word. The roots the refreshing stream of ready access all of the time. The water keeps flowing. The winds blow, but the water keeps flowing. The sun beats down, but the water keeps flowing. Because of its strategic location, not a location it came on by chance, but a, lo a location that came on by the intentional act of the one that cared for it. It was transplanted beside the river of water, and the nourishment came. Faces the same sun, faces the same wind, faces the same pest. What's the difference between this tree and another? Its location. Firmly rooted in the Word of God. Again, the key is not how many Bibles you have on the shelf, but how much the Bible is in your heart. How much of it have you reflected on? When your mind is not otherwise occupied, are you scheming? over here or are you stewing over there or are you ruminating in one of those somebody done me wrong stories that always happen or is your mind on the word of God do you meditate in it day and night do you drink deeply of his word the psalmist doesn't end it here. He not only wants you to experience what it's like to meditate on God's word day and night, but he wants you to know what it's like when you don't. He says, but the ungodly are not so, for they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Have you ever been up close and personal with chaff? I have. My maternal grandfather was a custom combiner. He would start down in Mexico and would harvest wheat and come through Texas and go all the way up into Canada just as the, as the harvest matured. He, uh, he drove his combine and uh, all their equipment and they just followed the harvest up. And one summer, he came through Edmondson, Texas, where my father was pastor of the local Methodist church. He came through the time of the year when the fair was in season. Now, in my family, work's a big deal. Uh, the children were never given anything. We worked, we earned, 
In fact, from the time I was eight years old, I was working out in the fields and would use the money that I would earn to buy my school clothes. So it was a hard life. It was it was a life where everyone was expected to pull their weight. I know I'm, for some of you, you're thinking I'm talking about a place in outer space, but that was the world I grew up in. And so my grandfather didn't offer to give me money to go to the but he offered me the opportunity to earn money. He said he needed my help on the combine. Now, when I got there, I showed up, 10 years old, dressed to go, ready for the day's work, excited to be with my brother. And he told me what my job was. I needed to take the grain level in the field. Now, the grain levels itself. It comes in, it levels out. But he let me, as it was safe, at the point where it was safe, get in there and level that out. I was earning my way, right? Well, after a couple hours of that, even after a couple hours of me getting to, I think I was probably pretend steering the combine, too. He was probably still in control. But I thought I was driving the combine. After a couple hours of that, I was ready to go home. But see, Mike Gross was a working man. He started at sunrise, actually before, because there was maintenance that needed to be done. And he kept those combines running until it was too dark for the other day. And so after a while, I went and sat in the truck, and it's all over me. I've never known. I mean, it's worse than red ants running all over you. That chaff gets in the pores. The pores are open because it's hot. Do I need to go any further? It was, it was miserable. For $5 that day, I was paid. It was miserable. I think I was the first 10-year-old boy in the history of the world that willingly took a bath. <laughs> it was so bad. What a contrast. Be like a fruitful tree and be chaff. The waste product. The good for nothing waste product that's irritating to everyone. Men, by the way, are not stoicists, but their life has no purpose and no future. Verse 5 says, therefore, the wicked will not survive the judgment, and sinners will not be in the community of the righteous. That's not the outcome of the genuinely happy person. The outcome to that is found in verse 6. Where the Lord watches over. You see, these were transplants. Let me ask you, anybody had their life transplanted? He's the transplant. He watches over the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked leads to ruin. Well, that's our song today. It's a song, a song, if you will, about two different choices. It might be other contrasting choices that we found in the scripture, 
The choice is obvious. Be fruitful. Be nourished. Be beside the stream. Don't be the chaff. Don't walk with the evildoers. Don't let your mind go there. It's an obvious choice. But not everyone makes the right choice. Perhaps there are some today struggling with that choice. Now, earlier I mentioned the contrasting choice that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount about building your house on the sand or building your house on the rock. You remember uh, when I brought up that text just a few moments ago. Well, in that text, in the context of it, there's a passage of Scripture that indicates that more times than not, people will make the wrong choice, and that's in Matthew 7, 14. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Why? Well, it takes more effort. It takes intentionality. If a person is going to make the right choice, it's going to be an effort. It's going to be a choice. It's going to take energy. It's going to take time. It's easier to go with the flow than it is to do what has the long-term payoff. You remember that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts. The genuinely happy person is the one that does the right thing, not the easy thing. They're the ones that immerse themselves in God's instruction and that chooses to live their life according to it. They don't just hear about the importance of forgiving, but they actually forgive. They don't just hear about the importance of the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth. But they go. Sometimes it involves getting on an airplane. Sometimes it involves walking across the street. But they go. They're the ones that put into practice. And so here we are, friends, the recipients of a benevolent transplanter who has placed us beside the streams of water and we have a choice. We can drink deeply of his word and meditate on his word day and night. It can be the source of our thoughts. It can be the guiding, guiding force of our actions. Or we can allow popular culture, what seems right, what a charismatic speaker says influence us. But there are consequences. There are consequences for those choices. I am aware that at different stages of life, this message has different views different applications, I should say. My father is 84 years old. Up until last year, he continued to preach the gospel. His eyesight is such that he can no longer, he 
can no longer finish and turn down opportunities. Whatever our differences and our just back there, wherever we go in town, whether he retired and was interim pastor of almost 20 churches during his time, every place we go, somebody comes up, hey, Brother Larry, how are you? And Dad never remembers who they are, you know, if he's aged, he just he doesn't. Occasionally he does, but most of the time he doesn't. He's just uh, he's just been faithful over the years uh, to preach the gospel. He told me recently that he spends a lot of time reflecting back on life, about life's choices, and when he did the right things and when he didn't. And he tells me that he struggles to remember the good things. Bad choices are the things that he remembers. As we come into older age, sometimes we struggle to fully understand what God's grace means and that it applies to us too. Some of us are at middle age about to turn 60. They call that middle age. I guess I'll live to 120. <laughs> Some of us are at middle age where we're evaluating our life about where, how we've come to this point and what we can do differently in the years that we have made. Kind of a mid-course correction. past, listen to me the past does not dictate your future it's just the context I'm also very aware that there are some very young faces in this audience people that are looking forward to most of their lives, not looking And for them, they're making choices. Do you realize that the highest time in your life that you make choices that determine your future is between 18 and 25? So many choices that we made back then, and some of you are making now, shape your future. In a profound way. Who we marry. What career we embark on. Where we go to school. What we have tattooed on our bodies. <laughs> we make important decisions. In fact, almost every week we have dinner with friends that I made back when I was 17, 18 years old. You know, those, those uh, relationships endure, the good ones. Whether you're at the one end of the spectrum or the other, the choice is clear for you today. What's going to occupy your mind? What's going to shape the dream? I'm not asking you what you're going to do. 
question is, who are you going to believe? And if any of those stages of life or those in between that I didn't articulate an example for, we have the opportunity to be the transplanted tree in the Word of God and allowing it to shape our lives. To use John's language, stay connected to the vine. And if we do, we bear much fruit. Let's pray together. Father, we are so fortunate to be in an age where your word is not rare. We have immediate and constant access to it. My prayer is, Lord, that it may have immediate and constant access in us. It's in Jesus' name.